Ladies and gentlemen, dudes and dudettes, you are, of course, listening to the Man Childian Candidate, where two fully grown men act their shoe size and not their age. My name is G-Man. My rank is unnecessary, but I go as captain, and sitting across me is Admirable Admiral Peebos. How are you, man? What's going uh, down? Yes. So you're admitting that I'm a superior officer. I said you're Admiral. Admirable. <laughs> we uh, launch it. Uh, okay. It's nothing about that. We're equal in this, man. We really are. Yeah. I agree. Well, I was about to say, dude, I should I should no way should I be in charge. That's oh, not a good thing. Yeah. We've tried that. You know, we've tried this and it didn't yeah. go so well. Some yeah. of those tears can't be taken away. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. So very much for that, by the way. Yeah, I can't it's, uncry uh, anymore. I'm sorry. It made Christmas so awkward, man. I tell mm, you. Mm. We've got a huge jam-packed program Ooh. for everyone out there in our Ooh. playership here today at the Man Childian Candidate. But first, I want to discuss something super, uh, super interesting. The world's an ever-evolving place, which makes it rather exciting, if not a little bit scary from time to time. And of course- Mostly scary. This is yeah. um what it's it's uh the eighth of October today in the is year two thousand and twenty. Okay. Yes, on the Julian calendar, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, perhaps. Yeah, we're but, not on the Gregorian um, anymore, are we? No, we're not. No, we stopped. That. No, we were doing it okay. all by ourselves, and I got really confusing. I wonder. It, it explains why we were late for everything by at least two months. <laughs> That's right. It was really awkward, man. Really awkward. But of course, we're in the middle of uh, the the global pandemic. And um, we're in Australia and we're in fact very lucky at the moment where we are because it's all sort of stabilizing a bit. But after this amount of time of some very powerful and idiotic world leader proclaiming that this is not very serious and no, it's nothing to be worried about, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Donald J. Trump has, of course, and his uh, the First Lady have contracted coronavirus in what I would say, is it, can you use a word better than ironic in this uh, certain situation? Oh, the only one that I was, would possibly go for would be karma, maybe? I don't know, but ironic is great. Uh, you know, I tried to sit through the debate and uh, that was that was tough enough. That was kind of like watching those two Muppets that you know sit up in the side theater. <laughs> yeah, the grumpy you know, old man. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Except way, way not as funny or fun. No. And you know, so that was tough. I mean, the eagle has not landed. The eagle has not landed the dismount. Mind you, it's weird. How come he doesn't have to go into isolation? Because I saw he's uh, hanging out. He's hanging out of the office, dude. Like, yeah. Without his just, mask as well. Just, like, yeah, just spraying covid occasion on <laughs> yeah. everyone. Yeah, um, it's absolutely classic. And it's fine, still, it's they don't quite know what's happened because he's done all of these rallies, of course, was it coming up to the election. Huge time. It's a really unfortunate time for him personally and professionally to be like not able to, you know, do his rallies. It must kill yeah. him. Yeah, um, they pumped him full of antibodies. I just, I just hope they pumped him. <laughs> like, seriously, what a fantastic idea, dude. Thank you, yeah, Donald. Try it yourself. Yeah, and so look, in my sort of ultra-conspiratorial funny mind, like if this was 10 years ago, my bro, I would have said to myself and possibly many others that I'd say it is not without, you know, outside the realms of possibility that cheeky son of a gun is tricking everybody and going, he failed that debate. He just got no respect from any free-thinking person for his ability to just insult and talk over his competitor. So yeah. rude, man. Just decorum yeah. isn't there. So, I know. man, I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced that A, that he actually does have it, and B, he's not really upset about it if he does. Because okay. it's a, I think it's a, you know, bargaining tool in a way to get the sympathy wow. p- potentially of the voters who he's obviously lost. 
I really like that, man. I, I also wonder, I was saying to the wife today, man, there's probably factions um, of his supporters that this may work in his favour. Like, he, he's a real strong leader. He got that COVID, didn't kill him. Yes, <laughs> right. Went straight, yeah. went straight back to work on the, in the following week. Yeah, yeah. And can that. you see how that would play out to the sharp mind of the person you just imitated then, honestly? Yeah. Yeah. It's really yeah. sort of, hmm. But, uh, but, I mean, you know, the problem was, like, uh, Biden didn't seem a hell of a lot better. Like there was a couple of senior moments there where you could see like the lights are on, but no one was home. Just, just, oh. just momentarily. I mean, you and I have those all the time, but it's different. We're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to run a country technically. Or the world, you, yeah, exactly. You could see he had a couple of like file found moments. I know. Yeah, exactly. Era four oh four. Sorry, but yeah, seriously, he's a very strange fella too, and I don't. Couple Gee, of tangents there. On. It was like, yeah, dude, like you know what? Yeah. What? Sorry. That's going to really come into part of it, isn't it? The the dementia thing. I think is a real damn thing. And um, he'll be, you know, when Bush was doing the whole thing, and he's not very eloquent. He's such a cowboy, and blah 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 blah. We know all this. Well, you know, one of my favorite things when YouTube first appeared was Bushisms. You know, you find oh, gap totally, dude. On I've YouTube. got a calendar. My God, there are 100,000 moments where he said inappropriate stuff, and we're going to get a lot of that from the next two presidents, whoever the president is. There's going to be gaffes everywhere, man. Fast so. times in the last few years, if you're a comedian, man, that was probably the the problem with Obama. Like, uh, there was just he was just too statesmanlike. Good times if you're a funny man. I would say not great times if you're a uh, you know American uh, voter. But look, you yeah. know, hey, we got our own problems. But yeah, dude, that's funny. But I didn't. That's an interesting point. I didn't think about that mm. area, that area of conspiratorial vibe. I was kind of thinking, did someone give it to him? Like, that's you not know, someone like just going, either. "Would you please die?" Like, yeah, exactly. Come here, sir. <coughs> Take that. <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> passive battle ever. Like, try that on. <laughs> Been working in the mines, pop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Got the black lung. Um, yeah, so in other than big news, big, big, big gaming big. news for us enormous gamers out there, um, yeah, this this one's huge, actually, and I don't really know how I feel about it, so I'll, I'll explore it now on air, if you wouldn't mind, is Please. that um, the enormous company that is ZeniMax Media has been bought by mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft for exclusivity of its intellectual properties. Now, ZeniMax Media, if you're not familiar, most pointedly owns Bethesda, which are the game development behind Fallout and the Elder, Elder Scrolls series. So Skyrim. Oh, mate. So everyone who's been sitting back waiting for... And it's been announced. There's a number six coming out in the coming years, oh, and it's yeah. going to be next-gen oh, as hell. Yeah. But what happens is... If you're a fan of the Sony PlayStation or the Nintendo Switch or any of those devices, you won't, unfortunately, be able to enjoy these properties because it is, of course, Microsoft exclusive, meaning Xbox exclusive. P-Boss, now listen here. You're a, a, an Xbox fella, and I respect I you. Um, how do you feel about this? This is a pretty beautiful thing. And bearing in mind, a couple of weeks ago, I was um, sort of saying, hey, mm -hmm. man, look, Xbox hasn't got those exclusives, <laughs> dude. Know. They just yeah. don't, and here are some of the big ones. Well, give, give me your take. Well, brother, I, I immediately thought of you when I when I woke up and heard <laughs> the news because I've got to tell you, Cuzzy, were I you, this would leave me with a big problem. This would either have me A, switching, you know, switching consoles or B, purchasing both. Because, brother, for me, like, uh, as we've discussed, I, I honestly think for me, 
if I had to nail one game, it's probably Skyrim that's arguably the greatest game ever made, I think. And mm. in terms of mm. that's probably my Desert Island game. And even in discussing it, I've purchased the uh, the remastered version again, which I didn't oh, tell dude. you. Cuzzy, within, I don't know, five minutes of being back in that cart and traveling in at the start and everything, I was just like, oh, snap. Like, I'm in, I'm in for this. Yeah. So, I guess, yeah, I, I actually thought of you in terms of going, well, I personally wouldn't want to live in a world where they're going to drop whatever they drop next and I can't I'm excluded from it cuzzy. I think yeah, if you could you know if you're calling yourself a a gamer and I know that you are that's mm. tough brother. That's it tough. Is. And what a what a power move my dude. What that's it is mad. a smart power move because yeah. the biggest criticism of the box you know no exclusive games mm. and then again dude I balance this with another thought in that, you know, Bethesda's last couple of releases have been just crud, you know? Cool, because I was about to say Fallout 76, dude. Worst ever. That's not not just a bad game, but 1001, by the book, poor business decisions by Bethesda behind that game too. And the thing about it is that, that, um, that sort of, I guess, worries me is that, yes... Um, I'm really angry at those cats in the last few years because they've probably committed some some of the most heinous crimes against gamers with the whole pre-sale bollocks and releasing a game that forget about forget about beta. It's just like, dude, this was clearly not finished. This was not even close, man. Yeah, it was like, yeah, it wasn't wasn't fresh, was it? Now, if I balance that with another thought, um, traditionally Xbox do care and carry their exclusive titles quite well. So, you know, really full disclosure of the complete man-child that I have been in isolation is that I've also, you know, been playing through the Master Chief collection, which is Mm. all the Halos, including the first two remastered, you know. You know, moving through Bungie, transferring over to 343 Studios, like that franchise, Cuzzy, you know, is is still in very good shape and was looked after well. So I guess the way I'm leaning is that, yeah, they've they've bought it, but I'm hoping that they're going to be saying, now, listen, <laughs> we we love our titles. So, yeah, get your, get your respective, yeah. you know, fecal matter together. Yeah, if you're going to be representing our company here with games that you produce, make them damn good. And I think that might be able to happen. They were acquired, my brother, for $7 billion. Yeah, that's which, serious. Oh, that's some money, man. That's, you know... Really is big, big money, and for a, a, an entertainment um, property, that's an um, investment. What can you do with you know an investment of seven billion? My God, that's incredible! It must be worth it to you. You think you're going to make that seven billion back, don't you? You don't Absolutely. spend it thinking, "Well, that was money well spent." I just liked buying companies. You've got a damn you know, big plan ahead. So I look forward to seeing what's happening. And I've heard some early rumors, and I don't know how much they're true, but there's talk of there's talk of fixing. Fixing, you know, pulling pulling things down and reconstructing engines, game engines, all that sort of stuff. Um, but one of the one of the directions that they're wanting to do is to say, listen, we want to get Elder Scrolls back correct and online mm. and and functioning. So I've heard talk of them saying, look, we want to, we basically want to create our, our world of Warcraft, and that's what mm. I'd do, cuz that's absolutely yeah. what I would do with that rich. You know, Tamriel, Skyrim, oh, that dude. rich universe, cousin. Dude. That's what I'd do. Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% in agreement with you, man. And I think it is what they will do, my brother. Mm, well, look, I hope. 
Yeah, I really do. I've got, look, man, regardless of uh, which puts side you anyone. In a, puts well, you it in doesn't, a conundrum. it doesn't. But you see, I'm also a PC guy. Henceforth, I get like, my little Microsoft connection through there. So yeah. I'm I'm going to be able to play it on PC. It's not the same as sinking into the, you know, the lazy boy with a, with a nice big frothy and starting, sparking up a new game or whatever. But, um, you know, I'll be able to get it, but we'll see. But yeah, yeah. it's a massive, um, a massive blow to uh, any other console out there, but it's also a massive win for any Xbox aficionados. If you're on PC, would you play it with controller or would you be just mouse and keyboard guy? Uh, I'd probably go controller, my bro. I've just, um, that's sort of, uh, it's been a long time since I've played a shooter on any sort of first person game on the computer yeah, uh, yeah. directly. So it, control is super comfy and I'm super swift at it. So I'll just yeah, do, that. do that. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for indulging our pre show um, preview wrap of State Banter. of the World. We've got to get a little sound bite in there or something like State of the World or something, you know? Well, there it was. There, oh. Great. Yeah. Oh, Good. Dude, I'll oh. just keep. I'll just Can we cut that, that out and amplify it? Thank you very much. But yes, it is time to get on to the crux of this week's program. Do you feel like giving our valuable players at home a little synopsis about what we're going to attempt today? We're going to look at the cinema release of Stargate, the original movie. And in doing that, we're going to explore antiquity and history. Mm. So... This is a great passion for us, and more of the discussion has been how are we going to approach this. So we're going to talk about the movie Stargate. We're going to examine the idea of is our history, particularly our antiquity, um, different to what it has been uh, taught and would be taught these days in school. And so we're going to look at Egypt We're going to look at primarily the pyramids. We're going to look at uh, the Sphinx. A sphincter says what? I couldn't hold that one in. Um, (laughs) You never can. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry. Uh, And uh, look, we may look look at some other concepts. Now, it's really important that we get this out in front and say, look, this is in the spirit of the water cooler discussion. If you were sitting in a car with G Fresh and myself driving somewhere, this is kind of the conversation or the discussion. So we we put our hands up and admit that we are not a this is not an episode of Joe Rogan featuring uh, Robert Bouval and, you know, Graham Hancock, although we will be referencing some of these ideas, my dude. That is beautifully said, my man. One hundred felt like a disclaimer. <laughs> No, yeah, it really was. And that, yeah, I think it was really important to, um, I suppose, yeah, my only uh, thing that I'd ever like to say to the listeners is we are by no means absolute undying, unwavering experts, and we're certainly not historians or Egyptologists. However, there is a lot of very interesting information out there for your plucking. So if this sort of incites or ignites any sort of uh, fire in your belly about, well, okay, perhaps what we've been told for the last 2,000 years is slightly inaccurate, you know? Yeah, so let's yeah. sort of, um, we're going to delve into a few bits and pieces, um, but primarily on Egypt because it's uh, there's just, it's the most documented and there is a lot of um, really interesting folk out there who've been studying this for a long, long time. 100%. So we've been doing our readings and hanging out. But yeah, the real entry point into this, my bro, is the 1994 
banging blockbuster hit that was Roland Emmerich's Stargate. Now, it really was. Oh, I love this film, and I love it because it's the, like the the nineties man, especially the mid nineties, are some of the finest times for uh, action films and and you know Saturday morning matinee sort of scenarios. And this one does not disappoint. You know, it's got everything you can want. Most importantly, uh, my main man and Your guy. she was my dearest friend is Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Ah, I can oh. say his name. Oh, I can hear it on the breeze sometimes. It's like a Russell in the breeze. You see what I mean there? I did that. Oh, dude, I get it. I get it. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. highbrow. But um, yeah, so we're going to be discussing that a little bit and um, just the reasons why and some of the concepts in that film that you know, uh, made us decide that we we're going to go down this avenue for the program. And I did want to say that we are going to be talking exclusively about the film as well. And it's, of course, had one yes. million episodic spin-offs, which are fantastic. But to get to the source of this uh, interesting conundrum we're going to pose, uh, we start with the OG Stargate. And I think that's fair. I think that's very fair, my brother, and beautifully said. So, look, released in 1994 and produced for uh, $55 million, and as you mentioned, directed by, I don't know how I preface this, I was, part of me wanted to say the great Roland Emmerich, but I'm just going to say Roland Emmerich. I think you can say the Roland Emmerich. <laughs> the Roland, that's <laughs> yeah. great, we'll drop yeah. the great. Yeah. Um, so, he was coming off a bit of a win in 1992 with uh, Universal Soldier and so had a had a you know had a bit of pull a bit of traction so ended up with a budget of 55 million to make this movie which you know back in back in that day was was no chump change and brother this this thing became a sleeper hit that year and made 196 million dollars worldwide mm-hmm. And then went on to that year uh, make another $34 million in on the home rental market. And for those playing at home who were the under the age of 25, you can Google the concept of home rental. And this thing, this movie, man, it had uh, offshoot video games. It had um, mm. Hasbro action figures. And it's really fair to say, cousin, that sci-fi fans absolutely embraced this movie. They loved it, as did the average sort of popcorn moviegoer. So, it was really well received, except by critics. Critics gave it a bollocking. Mm. Um, You know... And, They're rough um, out there, aren't they? The critics they are. They are. the best job in the world, too. You know, go and see that film. We'll pay you money. I think they take the title a bit too seriously. You don't have to always criticize everything. Um, and look, in 1996, uh, Roland released a director's cut mm. with about ten extra minutes of footage, some of which um, we might be discussing later on. Um, mm. Brother, I actually rewatched this for this episode. So did I, man. Yeah, that makes sense. Look, I'm I'm keen to hear your thoughts, but I will say, in rewatching this, I sort of went, "Ah, this actually isn't a great movie, but what it is is an awesome idea and an awesome concept. It still lives in my mind, but I realized much that I was just more into such originality in sci-fi. Mm. Where, yeah. where, where did you land? Because well, I've had—I um, don't know how many times I've seen it. To be honest, I think I could times that by ten. I've seen it twenty times. It's got a comfort yeah. factor to it, you know. Really, um, does. It, it does because it's it's thematic and it's it's 
grandiose and it's obvious and the music swells in the right parts and it does all the bits, which it's just great. But you're right with the concept, man. Uh, it's uh, it's a very profound sort of thing. So should, I'm thinking maybe just a brief synopsis of the film might sort of guide that a little easier. Well, what do you reckon? absolutely. And for those playing at home, the idea is pretty simple and probably by halfway through this episode, you'll understand why we wanted to tie it to some of these uh, deeper ideations about our antiquity. But essentially, we're talking about the story of an alien who comes to Earth, who, who has the name Ra, takes a human body and essentially, in short, influences our history. And, you know, so it presents this fascinating and really original idea that things that we call gods um, are actually, you know, actually aliens. By the way, James Spader, in my most recent rewatch, gosh, he carries so much of the story, dude. Yes. I mean, you know, I've given you the basic idea, but do you want to take us a little bit deeper into the, into the, into the basic concept? I mean, other than, other than, you know, we, we discover that, you know, we didn't make a lot of that. We quote humans. uh, That's not our original IP, that stuff. That's right. Yeah. And that's sort of, that's uh, really one of the cruxes of um, the film and the mystery that, are the pyramids, uh, in th- in which we don't, in fact, 100% know, in fact, how they were created. Well, there's a lot of speculations on it, whether is it, uh, uh, you know, the slave race that was uh, forced to construct these things, and we'll discuss how impossible that sounds in a couple of minutes. But the whole notion that, in fact, yes, the whole notion of a god potentially uh, coming to Earth and, you know, with no knowledge of scientific with no knowledge of scientific understanding of anything anything is absolute magic and so if something comes from the sky and appears and does all these things that you can't comprehend that are so far out of your fathom of understanding then of course it's magic and of course this must be a god and so it appears this is the god ra in uh, egyptian mythology the god of all gods and um as you said he does land on the planet where he's been landing for some time and what's really beautiful about it is the pyramid itself sort of they explain the creation and the whole concept of them as a slight little landing platform for this pyramid shaped uh, craft that lands and so then that sort of lends really kind of beautifully into the palatial inner designs that is the interior of the pyramid of Giza the biggest one Um, intricate interwoven passages upon passages in this place, man. And um, it's it's absolutely wild. So the concept that um, the pyramid itself was, in fact, not created by human beings isn't hard to believe when you see and have some of the understanding um, of the intricate and brilliant mathematical um, incredible it's just remarkable what these pyramids actually are and what they represent mathematically as well. Absolutely. And that's where that's where I start, man. That's where we get lost down a wormhole, you know. I know. Well, well before we before we, you know, jump into your wormhole, of which I'm so excited to be in again. Um yeah, we will just say that the basic sort of idea of this movie is to say that um, it is discovered that uh, there is a thing called a Stargate, which has not been produced by our hand or our particular technology. Um, and this god, Ra, he came to this planet and uh, basically utilised us, yeah, to mine what is a fictional element in the movie. You know, we'd later find out actually in the TV series that it's at Nakwita, a thing called Nakwita. Yeah. Um, 
but this is not actually revealed in the movie, but through visually we see that, yeah, he's, he's putting us to work and then essentially uses a Stargate um, with which humans can travel across the galaxy, creating, like you mentioned before, their own wormhole. And the idea is that these these beings called uh, uh, these these aliens called the Go- the Goa Old in this movie, of which mm. Ra is but one, is that yeah he takes other humans through this stargate and just says right I'm going to put you to work on this planet and this planet and this planet, um, essentially seeding the universe um, with other human populations that we then meet in the TV series. But mm. he's just got this cheap labour. Like, this dude's just got his own uh, interstellar Nike factory going on. <laughs> yeah. We meet uh, these this uh, community on another planet, another world. And the idea is once the, dis- the Stargate is discovered, obviously Kurt Russell's character, the military then gets involved to say, well, let's just see if it's going to be any risk. So you've really got a basic storyline encapsulated in there. But I would definitely say have a watch of this movie to all those p- punters playing at home. It's Absolutely. it's, su- it's oh, super, super fun. fun. Yeah. Um, and of course, Kurt Russell's the classic hero's journey, broken down character. He's, you know, recovering. He's actually not in active service when we first meet him. He's got a pretty, pretty lame haircut, actually, um, which he exchanges for an even more lame, classic 90s flat top, dude. Probably one of the best I've <laughs> yeah. seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's mourning mean, the loss it? of his son, all this sort of stuff. So. It's loaded in Spader. There's some parallels, perhaps, to some of the some of the academics and the writers that we're going to allude to in the this episode later on. Because Spader is a archaeologist and a language specialist who basically is coming to the idea separately that these weren't made by us. Us. These were made by other people. And of course, in the final stages of uh, sort of understanding and going out into the universe, the army approaches Spader's character and says come along. Mm. That is it in a nutshell. So, when we start to talk about the pyramids, my dude, you mentioned the mathematics and and, and we should warn our players at home that this is going to be an episode where, you know, G-Man's going to end up cross-eyed, I'm going to end up cross-eyed. You probably will too, so you shouldn't be driving. <laughs> um but I mean, can I can I throw some some thoughts and some some basic numbers that just blow my mind to you about the pyra- the Great oh, Pyramid, my, my friend? Throw them at me. Much the same as we did with it, with our uh, Kundalini hack episode. These are just things that I, I, I love people to have in their, in their landscape, in their head when, when having these discussions. So let, let's begin with the fact that, you know, the, the Great Pyramid – is effectively once you once you sort of uh, align and, and measure all of the dimensions, it's five point five acres in total. Mm, that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> there are two point three million stones inside, and and that make up this thing, mm. weighing between two point five and fifteen tons. Now I know mm. what you're saying, G Fresh. You're saying, <laughs> Peebos, how 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 heavy is a ton? Well, <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. One ton, my friend, is nine hundred and seven kilograms. Mm, okay. So we are now saying that the lightest block, the lightest block, is two thousand two hundred and sixty-seven kilos. However, the heaviest blocks are thirteen thousand six hundred and five kilos. 
Mm. Now, to give you, I don't know, some sort of a landmark in your head, those big-ass Toyota Land Cruisers, those giant things that are always trying to kill you in car parks, yeah? yeah. You know them? Yeah, I do. I mean, <laughs> I mean they're big, man. <laughs> yeah, they dude. weigh They weigh 2,640 kilos. Okay. It, it's estimated that the pyramid was completed in the space of tw- between 20 to 23 years, 23 at the most. And they've worked this out from the historical writings um, and also by the particular pharaoh who was reigning in the time that, that it was constructed. Now, if we go by the uh, statistics and the history that we're, we're being given, we are in a situation where one of these blocks – variation in the size that we said would have had to have been set every two and a half minutes every day for the lifetime of the build in this case over 23 years let me say that let me say that again do it again (laughs) every two and a half minutes one of those blocks would Mm. would need to have been set and by set i mean put into place perfectly aligned Mm -hmm. Now, bearing in mind, my dude, that at this point, the Egyptians did not have wheels, pulleys, or work animals. Mm. So, our, hist- our conventional historians will, have, will want, us to b- want us to understand that according to them, and according to, to some reputable writings in the history, that no wheels, no pulleys, no work animals, and only had stone and copper tools. Yeah. Now, this, uh, we'll just have to say, that, I mean, it's unfathomable. You know, when we also when we discuss the size of the universe, how just unbelievably ridiculous that sort of is, this is in the same realm because at that time, as you say, with this lack of tools, um, this engineering wonder, and it is a wonder of the it's world. They call it that for a reason. Uh, and it is a wonder. And um, to, to craft this thing, this is why it's so confusing, Without the, with those lack of tools, right? And so the general theory when I was growing up was that it was built by thousands upon thousands and thousands of slaves. And what they would Correct. do was with uh, logs, you know, sands having the old wheel, they had a bunch of logs and they'd wheel, pull these stones along from the barges that came down the Nile. Giant monolithic stones. With manpower or human power all by itself, replacing the front log as soon as it, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, dude, and if you have to place that every two minutes, two and a half minutes, man, I'm t- that. Seems unfathomable in my mind that that is even done. doing even doing calculations on the angle and the size of the ramp required. By the way, there's no there's no reference to a ramp. There's no evidence of anything like a ramp being used. But to get to those sizes and to still be able to have tolerable inclines, my cars mm-hmm. to roll to roll your logs up, yeah. you know. Um, the the ramp would have had had to have been incredibly large, like ridiculously large in scope and size, and strong enough to hold the stones. Like exactly that simple. It's that simple. Exactly. It's absolutely wild. Yeah. Here's my thing. I just all I wanted to do was was for our listeners at home to have some of those numbers and those ideas in their head. As again, you and I are not necessarily saying that it's that it's impossible or that, but it's just it is improbable. 
Now, bearing in mind that we've had modern modern engineering teams look over the specs and literally say they would very much struggle with what they have now to do that now to that standard. Yes. So, aside from aside from other little things like the fact that it is perfectly aligned to magnetic north. Yes. Yeah, that's freaky, isn't it? That that shows an understanding of. Um, that shows an enormous understanding of something far greater, uh, my bro. And I'm not going to take this away from you too much, but that no, no, no automatically implies if you understand where um, magnetic north is, it actually means that you truly believe that you are standing upon a globe, a sphere, and it has a magnetic field. This shows some level of understanding that we feel we didn't understand until much, 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 much later. And if that's the case, then someone's standing there with a compass or some other, you know, uh, north-facing device, and then, as you say, to land them with such precision, um, with no help from tools and bits, that's Really quite baffling, my bro, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and also about the scale of it. I don't know if I'm cutting you off here or taking your, no. taking your thunder. But um, it. when it was – oh, thank you, sir. When it was created, it currently sits, right? It's uh, 280 Egyptian royal cubits high. And its uh, base is 440 cubits across. Now, this is really quite an intriguing number for one very particular reason, which I just love. Take us there. Is the fact that uh, it is a perfect 1 to 43,200th scale of half of planet Earth. Beautifully, perfectly, with each side cutting the Earth in two and the point at the North Pole. Yeah. What the devil? This shows an understanding that, yes, we are, in fact, on a sphere. Here's half of it. <laughs> this is how it works. So this knowledge, my man, this is where it gets really confusing. I irrelevant at, in, in one couple of seconds for me is how they built it, but how did they fathom it? How did they plan it? What is the th what was the catalyst Absolutely. for them to understand that this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to build it, and we're going to do it with precision and rather quickly, if you don't mind me saying, for what they had. That's just phenomenal, my brother. Like, Sorry, I had to chuck that in there. I'll throw it back to you now, but that no, is uh, I love that. something of note. Yeah, dude, and these and these are the things that you ju you just boggle at, really, when you when you consider that again, no animals, no pulleys, no wheels. Um, but yeah, to conceive that you are in fact on a sphere, <laughs> on a yeah. planet, and and again, this is historians traditionally saying, on one hand, you're using archaic forms of building and, and, and labour, but on the other hand, at the same time, having such a complex understanding of astronomy, uh, physics, you know, let alone all the other numbers. And, and a lot of this we'll just allude to because our, uh, one thing that I'm learning about our audience, my cuz, is that they're fairly sophisticated with a lot of these things. So we won't bore them by mentioning or alluding to too much particular detail, let alone that there are equations that add up to pi when looking to the at the relative dimensions of this. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very difficult to sort of suggest that, that this is all coincidence. Mm. Well, yeah, and it really can't be because it's that sort of stuff you don't just accidentally do with that amount of um, human power. The power that the pharaohs um, had is 
baffling. This is wander around naked telling everyone what to do power. And yes. they did with great ferocity. So, you know, I can't imagine how many, if this was created by the slave race, um, that they've cobbled together, how many of these poor things were whipped to death. <laughs> you know, you're not lifting that rock fast enough, please. Like, yeah. in all honesty. Um, there's another little interesting fact that I, I would like to throw in there about the placement of them. Unless you've got something else that you'd like to mention no, before moving to, on to their to direct it. placement. Well, as as Pibas alluded to and, and told us directly, in fact, that uh, the angles of the pyramid face perfect magnetic north, east, west, and south. And that's baffling enough, but... Furthermore, the placement of the pyramids goes even deeper because the main pyramids of Egypt are three. You've got the Great Pyramid um, yep, and the yep, other yep. two, Khufu and, um, and the other one. <laughs> and um, their placement is really quite remarkable. Anyone that's seen it on Google Earth or a picture from above will see that the two littlies are placed kind of next to each other symmetrically and then the Pyramid of Giza is next to it, same distance apart, but offset by a very particular degree. Now, that degree is interesting, PBOS, is it not? Because it, in fact, represents absolutely perfectly uh, as a representation of the Orion constellation, which uh-huh. cruises through our night sky. And he's the hunter, of course, if you don't know Orion, and you will recognize it as the, the saucepan, if that's your common or garden variety name for the uh, constellation of Orion. Now, that, that is just baffling. And not only that, is that when that when the placement happened, when they were in fact built, um, the phenomenon that they were uh, uh, quantifying and understanding and representing was something that hadn't even happened or the Egyptian people hadn't even seen. Because what then happens, PBOS, of course, is with the natural procession of Earth around the sun and us in the solar system, etc., etc., uh, yes. including the Earth, Earth's axial wobble, which throws a whole lot of stuff out when you're trying to calculate stuff, but in this it's calculated, every 26,000 years or 27,000 years, the pyramids of Giza line up with the pyramid, uh, with the the pyramids of Giza line up with the belt of Orion. That is ridiculous. How did they know, why were they placing it there for something that they weren't going to experience because that's right bang in the middle of that procession. They were not going to see that. They didn't see the first time. They didn't see the second. That, my dude, I'm sorry to rant like that. It just gets, I get all hot under the collar because I don't understand. What's your opinion on that one, man? What do you know of that bit? You know, I get hot under the collar too. And the funny thing is we're not wearing shirts, but we'll talk about that another day. But the bigger question is, and of course you you beautifully just referenced the, the, the procession of the equinox, you know, which leads us to the point of this discussion today. We come to a twofold idea. There is a, a, a ton of evidence to suggest uh, that, that the fork in the road is here. Okay, who built them and when is more important. I will happily lean towards aliens at the drop of a hat, my friend. Um, however, here we come into the other, another idea which to be honest with you traditional historians you know uh, find as absurd or affronting is the idea that we have a far deeper history going way further into antiquity than we would uh, we have been taught yes significantly further too which is significantly is, is further so i love the fact that as we drive along this road you've already alluded to a time span that 
greatly precedes, uh, you know, uh, 4,000 years ago, which which is a, as we would sort of be led to believe thus far by tra- traditional historians. These, these pyramids are built allegedly just over 4,000 years ago. However, like you said, when you line them up, <laughs> and when you say they line up, dude, they line up to a point where it's not a coincidence and it cannot be, you know, so there we have our first problem with the timeline. We yes. have a timeline that starts to immediately point to beyond, well beyond that point. Now, this is also the first time that I will refer to the fact that the Egyptians say that they had a culture <laughs> and a long line of kings that came before the ones that we see in these history books, extending well beyond 30,000 years. Mm. But apparently we just ignore them. You know what I mean? The, yeah. The, the, the historians to me, and I don't want to come off too um, anti-academic, but this is one of the first instance, instances of many where we seem to want to have our cake and eat it too. So on one hand we say, well, this is written and this is therefore is – then on the other hand, they're going to ignore something as blatant as that, saying we are older and we have a deeper history. Yeah. Yeah. Look, and I want to say something on that just about the, the trying to understand and quantify the scale of the time that we're talking about. When you say 30,000 years, it's um, – Look, it's a long time. It really is. In the scheme of the history of the planet and the universe, it's bugger all. It's a blip. Just a drop. It's absolutely nothing. But to put that into a little bit of perspective, it was suggested that between 15 and 20,000 years ago, us as hominids, as Homo sapien, domesticated animals. Like, we take that for granted, that that's something that we just always did. But no, of course we did not. The dogs gravitated to us from wolves for warmth, safety, company, companionship, etc. And it became viable. And all of a sudden we got pugs, which is remarkably cruel. But that fact is that we weren't developed in certain ways that we consider uh, absolutely normal, which is just having a cat at home, having a dog. We hadn't done that yet. So... Then we're talking about double that time. So That's that right. time between domestication of animals and that again is a phenomenal amount of time. And there's a lot missing that we, you know, we don't know a huge amount, man. We weren't documenting history is the point because we hadn't figured a lot out or were we? Or were we? <laughs> you see. Thank you. Yeah. I love that. I gotcha. And it's, it's, worth, uh, it's worth pointing out that in the traditional view of history in that time so we took you know you're mentioning like 20,000 years ago we're supposed to be just hunter gatherers you know running around pretty much just rubbing poo through our hair you know <laughs> like it's not not <laughs> that not might have been capable. Your people that's where you came from yeah I'm just, yeah <laughs> oh it's old stinky people series again more dreadlocks. <laughs> well, at least now I only do it when I feel threatened. <laughs> Threatening me. <laughs> Good old bronzing. Yes. Yes. So it it is an interesting thing. So we we immediately have we immediately have a problem. And I love that you've just alluded to a culture, or a, you know that in itself sort of refers uh, to it to it to an uh, an ancient time or an ancient history. And this might be the moment, my dude, to mention um, the Dogon tribe. Mm. And the concept, and the concept of Sirius B, again, listeners, where we could go on this, as you're probably getting the vibe, we could go on this for hours <laughs> and hours. So we're going to really try to look at just a few main concepts in this discussion. And by the way, much with uh, much with uh, the 
the uh, Kundalini hack. We're hoping that this will open a tin of worms for greater discussion. So my dude, the Dogen tribe in Sirius B, um, a tribal group from West Africa who, who settled in that region somewhere in the range of the 10th to the 13th century. I think that's modern day Mali. Correct. You get the little bit of uh, geography pie in your trivial position. Oh, dude, I know. Thing. Yeah, I know. It's the last bit I needed too. So thank you. I'm uh, going home. Was that blue? I think it was blue. Geography? Uh, anyway. Geography is blue, dude. Yeah. I just yes. Yeah. All right, man. All right. We can still be friends. There's one little test every podcast. And you just what pass. is uh, brown is art and literature, yes? Yeah. 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 It's, right. you, know how I re- you know how I remember that? Fart and literature, brown. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's actually um, higher thinking than I thought of. <laughs> man, that's so well done. Right up there with the Egyptians. All right, so they were studied by French anthropologist Marcel Griol. I'm going to butcher that. I apologize. Um, and German Dieterlin, Germain Dieterlin, um, who was also an anthropologist, and I apologize for that, um, for a period of about 10 years from 1930 to 1940. Now, it's really... Uh, important to understand that a lot of a lot of the understandings of the tribe they got primarily from interaction with four uh, Dogon priests. Now the Dogon priests mention an astrological law that goes back over thirty two thousand years. Mm. So we, so here we have it again. They had some key beliefs which again were unusual for for that that type of organizational society. They believed that planets orbited the sun. They believed that Earth and other planets rotated on an axis. They were aware that Saturn has a ring, that Jupiter has four moons. But probably the big thing, the big two points here, they were aware of the star Sirius and knew that it was part of a double star system. A binary system, as we call it in the trade. Absolutely, my 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 little Carl Sagan here. I got you, man, bro. They also knew that it had. They were aware that it had an orbit of about fifty years. The second key point was they they referred to Sirius B as being very very heavy. Now this is, you know, this is this is crazy, dude. In my in my mind, and just indulge me if you would for a, a moment more. The Dogon stories explain that through their oral traditions that a race of people from the Sirius system called the Nomos visited Earth thousands of years ago. Now, the Nomos, according to the Dogon priests, were ugly amphibious beings that resembled mermen and mermaids. Now, just worth referencing that these sorts of people, these types of individuals also appear in Babylonian and Sumerian and Akkadian mm. mythology. Sometimes the Egyptian goddess Isis, in fact, often she, she can be found being depicted as a mermaid. And she's also in Egyptian law been linked with the star Sirius. Mm. So mm. I don't know, my brother, there's co- coincidence, you know, whatever you decide. It's an amazing thing, Peebos. It really is. Um, and as you said, and, and, What's important to note is uh, their understanding of Sirius B, which, as B. you said, is the binary star of um, it's the Canis Majoris constellation, and Sirius itself is one of the, is the brightest star in the sky that we can see. So that's no problem. You can see that, and you also can see the, that. The interesting thing about it is it's uh, it's the dog star, right? Canis Majoris, 
which is also Orion's hunting dog in the mythology. So it's connected directly to Egypt with the whole Orion connection. But the thing about Sirius B, you can't see it from Earth with the naked eye. You can't see it. So they knew something was there that you can't know, and they tell you that they were told by someone from the star itself, right? Which is That's battling. Right. But also, interestingly, if you Google uh, Dogon tribal mask, I've been I've had the luxury of seeing some of these in the flesh when I was in oh, New York totally. City at the big museum. It was amazing. These masks, my dude, and a lot of the ceremonial headdresses that they wear, man, if you wanted to see a depiction of something that we would reference now as an alien, well, wow. have a look at those masks. They are horrifying. I mean, most war masks, of course, through tribal um, societies were, of course, to uh, a bit of protection, but definitely to scare your adversary as well, because that Absolutely. means hell might not actually have to fight this battle if he runs away. They weren't so, party masks, yeah. <laughs> they, so, well, maybe they were. I might have got the whole thing wrong. But there's <laughs> just so many beautiful... Um, you know, holes in this story that just evoke, you know, interest and spark the imagination and Absolutely. the similarities between the two tribe. And like, while we're on similarities um, and, and other races, uh, I think we'll come back to the pyramids in a sec, in particular to discuss the, uh, the very mysterious uh, monolithic creature that is the Sphinx. And we'll be right back for that in a tick. But um, this goes further, really, with the ancient civilization example that you've given. And there's a couple of other enormous cultures, mono, monolithic cultures, yeah. um, and polytheistic cultures as well, that have very, really uh, alarming peculiarities and similarities between that and uh, the Egyptian culture. So Absolutely. the Mayans in particular as well, um, and, and the Aztecs, they're all monolithic societies, really quite large. And the monolithic pyramid that is in Mexico, which is Chichen Itza, it has some of the most stark um, comparisons that can be drawn between any monoliths in the world. The difference is, this is on the other side of the world. Now, the monolith that is Chichen Itza has the same dimensions, man. You know, to scale, it's not directly the same. It's not the same cubits, but it's also mathematically proportionate to the scale yes. of the planet. Also aligning north, east, west, you know, etc. The other one is in modern-day Cambodia, which is Angkor Wat. Now, a lot of folk don't really think of this one in reference as any sort of relation to either of these other two societies, but Angkor Wat has very similar properties and an understanding of the astronomical astronomical procession. So the spires that make up the three dominant spires of uh, Angkor Wat each represent little bits a part of the procession of the year. So you know during the solstice it's on a particular spire, the equinox is on another spire at sunrise. Once again, massive structures requiring manpower or help in a time when they didn't have it, and. Each of these cultures then also references the point like, oh, they, you know, they got help from the stars, like guys came down. It's like, yeah. wow, okay. So that's three spots. And, I, and particularly, I think I could be easily corrected on this, but from what I understand, the placement of these monolithic places on planet Earth are significant as well. All equatorial oh. along the banner of the equator there and um, about 33 degrees uh, apart uh, in reference to the prime meridian. And that... Is astronomically ridiculous. How can three cultures at a very similar time, vastly different, come up with the same thing to do the same astronomical markership? It's like putting a, uh, you know, it's a sundial for the universe, basically, is what they've all done at the same time. Similar properties, 
different methods maybe. I don't know. But that just gets my juices flowing, man. I tell you. I tell you. All I'm all I'm saying is that must have been some significant poo that they were rubbing through their hair <laughs> to just immediately stop hunting and gathering and going, wait, wait. If we work together, build. we can build a compass. How, when you examine it like this, and this is just scratching the surface, by That's dude, right, yeah. How are we really expected to participate in this absurdity again Indeed. to just yeah. say, okay, this just sprung up. These just sprung up from nowhere <laughs> on those on you know on, on those timelines from people who just stopped <laughs> rubbing poo yeah. and just started to build. And and the thing too, just to finally uh, you know leave this uh, little segment here is that all three major cultures that had huge amount of influence throughout history in their own parts of the world no longer exist in any form for us to ask. That knowledge, I'm afraid, has fallen to speculation at best, you know, and um, carbon dating and just sort of like reading Herodotus over and over again, hoping that half of it's right. It's just, um, it's baffling. It's just baffling, you know. Hey, now we're going to shoot ourselves, uh, launch ourselves straight back to Egypt um, rather swiftly to try to understand the significance of what we call the Sphinx, the Great Sphinx. And a sphinx is a mythological creature. It was originally an Egyptian uh, monarchan icon. It was uh, named and then swiftly borrowed by the Greeks and then the Romans as a as a little mythological creature. Now, the sphinx is an amazing creature. It's the body of a lion, the head of a human. It can be a man. It can be a girl. It doesn't really matter. But one of the key things that a sphinx was, it is a guardian. It's a protector, is a sphinx. And what the sphinx does as its defense mechanism, it asks you, riddles and you've it's much like Gollum so the whole mythology behind this is when you want to get into that room you must answer the sphinx's questions three and if yes. you fail no entry I don't think you die but you don't get to go in but if you answer those questions sure you can make it in so it's a really interesting piece of symbology the, the sphinx my bro but more importantly um ah what is it exactly about the sphinx that we're going to talk about well it is Again, purported to be about four and a half thousand years old. So we have a, a couple of individuals in history, and now quite a few, um, in the form of a John Anthony West, a Robert Shock in particular, and publicised, I guess, or brought to attention by a Graham Hancock, to essentially look at the weathering, at the, at the water damage on the Sphinx, and to say that that is a different type of weathering. So what that is, is that is rainfall. That is weathering upon a thing that sits in the middle of a desert, but it's weathering because of rainfall, my brother. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we now have a recurring theme. So if we look back to history, the last time that we would have had such heavy rainfall, my brother, such heavy rainfall. In the desert, by the in way. In the desert yeah. to do that <laughs> to stone. And by the way, you know, they didn't just go down to Bunnings and get some like crappy sandstone. You know, they, they these guys, they used good quality, good this quality lime, stuff. They used limestone, man. This was highly kept desirable. The, kept the receipts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so for, to, for rain to weather a stone like that in a desert, we need to go back to a period in history that is 
far, far further back uh, than would indicate uh, the timelines that we're dealing with. So we have a recurring theme, and this is possibly the first time in this discussion um, you mentioned uh, a lot of uh, older cultures and societies having a shared law. That shared law is the flood theory. Yes. So most most notable of and most probably well known within Christianity, um, referred to with 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 Noah, you know Noah and his ark. But it's fair to say, G Fresh, that a flood, um, an allusion to a and not just a flood, but a great cataclysmic flood, um, is mentioned in so many histories of so many cultures, my brother. Again, from all different parts of the world. So here we go. Here, here we go for, for somewhat of, of a plot twist. We first have reference to a society called Atlantis and references to great floods destroying that city of Atlantis by Plato. Plato, who was told about this by someone in his family, a guy called Solon. And again, Plato, in his writings, my cousin, writes down dates, which you add them up now, come come completely concurrent with what uh, John Anthony West, Robert Schock, um, many, many geologists are now saying that the last time this great voluminous cataclysmic flood occurred was 11,500 years ago. Mm. And it occurred um, and became part of an event called the Younger Dryas Period. So... Here we go deep, my cousin. Like, gee willikers, how do we how do we even start to explore this topic? I'm pretty sure my eyes have gone crossed already. I know, I can see them, but you still look very handsome. As long as you you know look at me with one good eye, that's fine. I look like Marty Feldman. <laughs> Just a little. I wasn't gonna say anything. Um, yeah, no, that's a that's a big one, man. And um, you know, when we talk about the ancient civilizations across them, like especially the three that we just mentioned, um, all sort of cultures are sky god cultures. All of them have rather similar timelines and all of them are wiped out in rather similar fashions at a very similar time. And they've all got these so such glaring similarities it, you can't actually ignore them but no. that one my brother the the uh, the great flood isn't speculation that was something that actually happened Correct. and you know every you've got to pick apart when you're going through the bible which bit is uh, fanciful and storytelling and which bit was actually like yeah well there was a huge flood must have been god so we don't understand it this is what's happened but it's like this big cleansing you know and hence the ark blah 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 etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah so the weather on the Sphinx is where they get it from, as it's you, know, rain. you said, which is it's which is amazing. Which also then means now this this is where I get sort of really confused about it. As you say, you know, we've carbon dated. We understand the pyramids are four thousand or so years old. Or my goodness me, who was there beforehand and who then constructed the Sphinx? So if the Sphinx has been sitting there for that long, um, much longer than we predicted. Um, Dude, what? There is a massive plot hole here. I can't there really is. work that out. And they're not giving, well, they, as though there's this big conspiracy behind it. I can't and I don't know <laughs> the answer to that. Who was on that plane when everything was happening? Whose civilization was flooded away? And that's where it gets massive, doesn't it, really? This is, this is, I mean, again, we have some idea. 
um, it's reasonably laid out for us in the terms of these cultures, these grand cultures referring to their prehistory. And I guess the fork in the road occurs again um, when they refer to, to gods. And again, our great friend Arthur C. Clarke, the quote that you alluded to before, I, I feel like pointing this out again, is that, you know, to, to any, you know, any superior advanced technology is going to appear like magic to those that don't have it. So, I guess we have the same fork in the road. And again, I'm happy to consider either option, but what we're nudging at, you know, let's just let's just go for it, dude. Let's go boots and all in here. What we're nudging at here is the idea that we have a far grander prehistory. So what we're nudging at here, those playing at home, and I and I think you're picking up what we're putting down is that we had higher cultures and higher societies that evolved over potentially hundreds of thousands of years, destroyed by a cataclysmic event, which culminated in the in the atmospheric change that was the overnight <laughs> deep freeze of the younger driest period yeah. and then the defrosting yeah so you think about you think about it you know back in the day when you buy the box of sky bombers dude and you just chuck them in the wrong part of the freezer and they just are they're just like bricks you know and then you pull them out and you leave them on the bench and then you got sky bombers all over your floor so <laughs> yes dude this is literally a case of saying now and by the way this is peer-reviewed science <laughs> this is not this is not just you know quackery or pseudoscience this is peer-reviewed science to say that, you know, in a period between 12,800 years ago to 11,600 years ago was an extreme and anomalous cold, referred to as the Younger Dryas period, brought on by an, the impact of a large, large... Uh, I suppose you could say it. We can use the word extraterrestrial object in being a giant, you know, a large meteor or a comet which struck the Earth. And essentially, we have evidence now of a 50 million square kilometers of synchronously released damage across the planet due to that impact effectively in a single day and a night, cuz. I mean, you know, I've I've heard you whinge about a bad day. Mm. My my dude, this is a pretty bad day. <laughs> it's like the you can't. It's too hard to fathom once again the 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 scope and size of a cataclysmic event of that and of, of that magnitude. And it's not uncommon, man. That happens all the time. Relatively, look exactly. how many dinosaurs are cruising around right now. And that's an interesting thing you mentioned too, because I think when you think of an ice age or the ice age, you really sort of cast your what yourself way back to like the crudes, don't you? We're all walking around saying ooga booger and hitting each other with clubs, <laughs> which, yes, we probably were, but that's how swiftly societal evolution really is when everyone sort of started getting it together and saying, you know what, if we work together, this could be a bit more effective, you know, and so that's, that's pretty crazy. So the Ice Age is far closer to us in the scope of the human uh, history than we actually really take for granted for, you know, it's amazing. Exactly. And so when we say, when we say an Ice Age, we are talking about, and again, this is established science, peer-reviewed, two-kilometre-deep ice sheets on the top of North America and Northern Europe. Two kilometres. So, you know, it is very clear what created 
were what started the Younger Dryas period. As we mentioned, a devastating impact of a large, large chunk of rock, which uh, is indicated by the by the uh, the presence of trinitite um, all around the world. Mm. So, a, you know, fifty million square kilometers of, of of unleashed impact. So, to to give you to give you a perspective, that's that's you know instant nuclear winter, you know, overnight. Yeah, and if people are asking where the fragments are, and that's one of the arguments too, so if that happened, then where are the bits? Well, I don't know if you know what happens when that sort of thing happens, but I believe it's called vaporization. <laughs> they yeah, just yeah, yeah. pulverize to nothing, basically. Now, yeah. now, don't forget, for the biggest criticism of this idea was that, well, where are the impact craters? Well, they're discovering impact craters. They have discovered um, impact craters, you know, around the world. They've, there's been ginormous impact craters discovered in Greenland and yeah. in the Middle East. Yeah, um, Mexico's got some, man. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Let alone let alone the impact craters all over the moon. Let alone the fact that we live in the, Ky- the Kyber Belt. We we yeah. we are in an air, a high risk <laughs> traffic zone um, in in you know the Milky Way. Yeah, uh, and it's galaxy. peak hour, and it's crazy out there. It's peak hour, and it's crazy. So we've we've now we've now agreed that this event that occurred sixty four million years ago was was what you know said said goodbye to the to the big uh, you know terrible terrible lizards. And we are we are saying that there's one that's been you know arguably as impactful, but far far more recently. Mm. So again, we have this number, you know, eleven thousand six hundred years ago as being the giant defrost. Now there is conjecture. We're not, you know, we listen to me as if I'm a scientist. Um, the scientists are not exactly as as sure as to what created the big melt. But the big melt occurred. Again, to give you, playing at home, a context, two kilometre deep ice sheets on the top of North America and Europe. I can't even contemplate two kilometres, you know, thick. I just can't do it. Um, So, you know, to give you some context, we're not talking about, and we're not even talking about two kilometre deep ice, you know, just covering you know, a suburb like Brunswick. We, we're talking Northern America, yeah. Northern Europe. So that's, that's a, it's a lot of moisture, mate. So let's imagine that melting. This is what um, wonderful, wonderful scientists and thinkers are, are, are saying. Well, it's absolutely what gives you a flood. That volume of stuff melts. You got some problems on your hand. Now combine that with the fact that when we match the dates to today, we have Plato saying this is what occurred 11,600 years ago. So, to quote Graham Hancock, if he made that up, what an incredible coincidence. Yeah. He did not cre- He did not make that. He has that sort of fantastical mind, you know? Absolutely, dude. That's um, it's, it's really quite remarkable. We discussed whether we're going to talk about, um, you know, ancient civilizations that we actually do know a little bit about that I do still think we should save for another time when we can actually sink our teeth and do some really major deep cuts on that guy. And that would be majorly for me to give, uh, you know, the players a little bit of a notion of where we might go in the future is uh, Sumeria and some really 
fantastical notions from their history who have claimed to have had a lot of interference and interaction from their sky gods and they weren't really even brazen enough to give them <laughs> many names they told you what they were they were from outer space and Absolutely. yeah that's a that's a huge thing man i'd love to talk about that in the future because that's um that's still a big part of this puzzle that's like the, the you know the b side of this uh, delicious record we've put together you know absolutely even just in this water cooler type of initial examination it's fascinating to pop the lid because I have had the, and I know you have too, I've had this discussion with people and the constant invitation of this podcast is to just say, is it not possible? Is it not interesting? Is it not trippy as hell? Is it not more interesting to talk about than home and away? When I have discussed this information with people, quite often yeah, you'll see the heads nod and people are like, holy crap, like I did, I have never heard of the Younger Dryas period. Mm. I, you know, I wasn't aware of the fact that the Dogon people referred to Sirius B as a heavy star. I wasn't aware of the fact that then it becomes apparent through science hundreds of years later that it's a white dwarf. And that the density, you know, the density of a white dwarf is just absolutely super dense, let alone to discuss facts that we, I mean, I say we as the Western culture didn't understand about how many moons a bloody planet had or Saturn, you know, having rings until so much, so many hundreds of years later with telescopes, dude, mm. with satellites, you know, with with <laughs> literally these, just these really grandiose drones that they're going and flying through space. Yeah. So <laughs> we, we, we draw people's attention to the idea to say that you alluded to it perfectly before, these megalithic structures, these, you and I haven't even gone on rants as to the precision really with which the actual engineering occurred, let alone the alignment, but the precision, you know. Yeah. And we're trying to suggest that all of a sudden we we just stopped running around out in the fields and created these. These needed a great period of time to lead up to accruing these skill sets. So I guess to nudge this crazy bus one final step further, we are suggesting at the water cooler is that, look, we are older than we think. We've had help. And again, these cultures often refer to the fact the Egyptians do, the other sites that you mentioned. These people refer to, oh, we didn't really build them. We just, we just added to them. Mm-hmm. You know, these were here. Um, so there's reference to the fact that these are a lot older. So what we're nudging is to say we have a prehistory. Now, whether it's aliens or whether it's us, Jesus, man, that's more episodes to come. Mm-hmm. But we have a prehistory. A cataclysmic event wiped out a lot of these populations. But the, the literal suggestion from Plato is to say that certain members of these populations survived to pass on skill sets, technologies, and insights. Yeah. Now, the big problem, the big, the big fat, buffy elephant in the room, well, uh, the bugbear of traditional historians you know, a, a, a few years ago, was to say, well, where, there's no other monolithic structure, Mr. Hancock. Why would you be saying, why are you suggesting 11,000 years old? Why, there's, show me something else in this, in this, you know, planet that's of that age. Yeah, did he just pluck that date out of anywhere, did he? And then, of course, mm. not even that far, not even that far from the pyramids, my cousin, comes Gobekli Tepe. Ah, oh, yes, sir. Turkey. Absolutely, my brother. Mm. And we are saying here is a giant monolithic 
structure. We've we've really only explored maybe five percent of it. Mm. That comes in exactly at that date. So it predates traditionally ideas of history by, you know, five thousand or more years. So here we are looking at this ten and a half thousand, eleven and a half thousand year sort of spot. And that's an astonishing leap in time. That's not there it is realizing like, oh actually, gee, that's actually a thousand years older. We're getting further and further. No. Went from it five thousand years older is a (laughs) hell of a lot of time. It really is. That's between now and the construction of the pyramids themselves, really. And that Gee, man, a lot can happen in that amount of time. Or did it? You know, that's something else. Because, I mean, we see this, the rapid snowballing of technology every single day. You know, we were born, I was born in the 80s, you in the 70s, and we've seen stuff, man, and we've done some things. And in this amount of time, like the the, the technology reference I always give is oh. like having a mobile phone in your pocket. It's something that is so familiar, so constant in your life. 20 years ago, my bro, What? Really? That's 20 years. We're talking 5,000 years. What happens in that amount of time, you know? But Absolutely. who knows about that snowballing of technology then? Like, what happened? You know, how quickly did that move technologically? Like, as you say, you know, 4,500 BC, wheels and pulleys, you know, really, yeah, hadn't really sorted that out yet, which is quite amazing. And now here we are. Look what we can do. We're flying, man. We're flying. Yeah. We've left the planet. I know. It's, I know. It's, it's really crazy. So, yeah, that's where it's – Um, that's just once again – I'm going to say the word again, unquantifiable in my mind. I Yeah, I find that scope of time hard to fathom. I actually find it fascinating in terms of saying even if you – and you alluded to it perfectly, cousin – look at the evolution of technology and even in how we transfer and store information now. We're putting stuff into clouds. You know, stuff is, you know, to, to not to go on too much of an old man rant, but look at the way that a car was produced in the 1950s as opposed to how it's produced now. But you put any of these things in the scope of a, a giant asteroidal impact and ice sheets that are in excess <laughs> of, mm. of two kilometres that are just going to crush and vaporise anything underneath, right? Mm. There would be literally no record of us. That, you know, I guess why I'm saying this is, again, historians will go, you know, let's be honest, Gobekli Tepe really, um, it really was the uh, smoking gun. If you have an event even similar to that, we now store information in a cloud. We don't write anything. We don't write things down. Everything's made of plastic. These things are going to be crushed, eviscerated, gone under and, under the scope. Yeah. And you know, the, the the funny thing is, maybe maybe some of the things that few things that might only remain would be, you know, like the 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 presidents on the uh, what's the what's yeah the Mount name? Rushmore, yeah. Mount Rushmore. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, I'm just going on a journey here, but it's conceivable that you know. 50,000 years, 100,000 years after another cataclysmic event, you know, they, they take that long to get back to this level and they go, oh, those must be their gods. Mm. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. The idea is that if you wanted to leave a message that might survive, you'd do it in stone. Yeah, well, yes, and that's... That's literally um, stood the test of time, very much so, and has been vast indicators. But I, I would also 
um, pose to you that we are, in fact, still a monolithic society in so many fashions. We don't do it like that anymore, of course. The wonders, we don't bother building wonders. It's a, What's happened, you know? When was the last wonder of the world built? Well, I can't tell you because it's too far away for me to understand. But every city in the world, man are covered in spires to the gods, every single one of them, you know. The skyscrapers that litter the planet, and I did use the word litter on purpose, they are disgusting-looking things, aren't they? They're heinous little fingers pointing back at God going, look what we can do now. And, you know, they will probably be around, I would say, proportionately in 2,000 years, at least some sort of remnant. But boy, we're going to look like a wasteful, wasteful bunch of people where nothing was built to last, nothing. And as soon as you realize if you made something that would break in a certain amount of time, you could then sell that guy the same thing and he's going to go and buy it like an idiot. And this is our culture. It's some, yeah, look, we won't have much left, really, will we? Apart from the spires to the gods. I just don't think so. Pre-programmed obsolescence is an absurdity that's a reality. Um, Again, our old mate Plato talks about this. He talks about the high culture that was high Atlantis. He talks about uh, how this society became prideful and arrogant and the, and, and the ensuing hubris that was, that was the flood, that was the, the great edification. Um, it, is, it is very interesting to look at... <laughs> what we're doing and where we are today mm, mm. and to kind of go everyone knows that saying about those that that are unaware of history are condemned to repeat it so you know not to get not to get too bogged down and depressive and you know absinthe and nick cave albums but it it is an interesting thing now we come to a point where there are monolithic structures giant monolithic structures being uncovered in antarctica yes Yeah, and I think there's some funny thing about that. I feel like it often gets forgotten that um, Antarctica is a landmass and it's a continent and it's huge yeah. and it's just sitting there Largely frosty untouched. as hell, you know? And so there is there is stuff under that sheet ice, man, you know? There really is. Let alone <clears throat> the megalithic structures, you know, there's megalithic structures that are under the oceans that are, yeah. that are in places that, you know, were not underwater again in that time frame. That's right. um, there's megalithic structures in Japan that are, that are actually being dated as you know, twenty thousand years. So, Houston, we have a problem. Like I, I've told you this before, it's so trippy having children, just on many levels. But having children that are going to primary school, in my case, reading history books, and brother, it hasn't changed much. You know, like they're still they're still studying these conventional ideas of Egypt. It's still, you know, if you still look at even this peer-reviewed science, it's it's influenced, uh, you know, it's it's rev- it's looked at with scorn still. Yeah. Um, and you have again, you know, the hero of this podcast, Mr. Graham Hancock, who is, you know, who is beaten over the head with the concept. I think the first time I ever heard the word pseudoscience was just people battering Hancock with 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 such a degrading idea and a concept. Um, and he has just proceeded forward since, you know, since, uh, you know, authoring the fingerprints of the gods, like a Rocky Balboa being mostly vindicated 
at most junctions. Mm. Like we've said, Robert Shock, Robert Bouval, you know, Randall Carlson, um, all these, all these, you know, particularly Randall Carlson, the guy's, you know, the guy doesn't work at a milk bar. He's a he's a scholarly individual who's been studying this all his life. And and again, produced uh, verifiable evidence regarding the the impacts all around the world, con- concurring and confirming this idea. So, my dude, we're older, we're potentially much older than we are. And the question is, why do we fear this information? The question is, as we asked with the Kundalini hack and the uh, extraterrestrial I- uh, life idea, why do we A, fear this and why do we B, why won't we even consider it when there's enough evidence? And, and by the way, Hancock is largely just saying what we are. Mm. He's largely just saying, is it not worth more study? Is it yeah. not worthy of deeper inquiry? So, dude, what's your take? Like, why, why are we scared of this stuff? Well, is it not the most fascinating thing to want to know more about? It's, you know, even if they're vastly wrong, it's like, oh, God, read the rock wrong. Sorry, it's actually the same. It's still fascinating to think about. But the fear that you talk about, yeah, man, it's a little bit like um, we reference it all the time here, the Kundalini hack discussing if and when what actually would happen, the actuality of aliens arriving. Well... The problem with looking into history this deeply is that if we genuinely discover this and it becomes resoundingly true, everything that we knew is a little bit inaccurate. You know, we've got it all right up until sort of the period, uh, the pyramids. We kind of worked that out, right? But if there's so much more and we do we discover unequivocally that, oh my God, there was a city there 10, oh, 100,000 years ago, dude, that shakes up everything that take, shakes up all the religions on the planet that shakes up all the history and then in turn so much else, you know, that we've just accepted. And in, you know, for lack of a better word, we've normalized this potential lie that's been spun or just the misknowledge, you know, the missing links in our uh, in our knowledge of these subject areas and these civilizations. You know, Atlantis and all that is just a fabulous and fantastic and romantic sort of notion, you know, the forgotten city. And I reckon that deserves a program of its own in the future as well, because that's fun, you know, to really speculate. And there's so many ideas about where that could actually be in the world. Was it sunk? Was it actually swallowed by the land? Is it in front of us the whole time? There's really quite outlandish theories out there. But yeah, man, to sort of summarize that, yeah, we would have to whitewash a whole lot of what we know. And that is hard. That's rewriting all the books, man. That's, you know, it really is. So it's actually also, yeah, scary for that reason. Just the logistical efforts that would have to happen, you know? Yeah. God. Yeah. It, it, it's sort of, I know personally, if I found out confirmation of structures in, you know, Antarctica being hundreds of thousands of years old, I'd probably take a day off work. Oh, um, yeah. I know that, uh, you know, if it was confirmed that there were extraterrestrial cultures and, and races and, yeah, probably take a second day off work. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I agree with you that I wonder if it's tied in with the concepts of control and all that sort of sinister stuff, which is, you know, we won't lean too hard there with our tinfoil uh, stack hats on, but it just it just makes me think about, for people, I think people who are seeking greater implications 
um, this has this has in, in, in you know this has incredible implications to say that. And I wonder if it might even bring us closer together as a as a as a society, as a planet, as a community. To go, listen, man, we might be hundreds of thousands of years old. And even to say, and another episode, you know, we 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 will explore, you know, the Denisovans and the, all the different types of, you know hominids advanced hominids that that are have now been shown to exist and again when you and i were kids this information wasn't out there this information was not readily available it leaves me with the concept of you are either the sort of person that walks out into the backyard at night and looks up at the stars and goes Whoa, or you're just not you know and this podcast is for the Whoa, people but also to try and you know, ins- you know, ins- get a bit of um, I don't know, inspiration and excitement for it. So you know, hopefully someone listens and goes out and thinks, well, maybe I will look up, you know, because this is a journey that we can all take together. And um, it, the more people, the merrier. It's great fun to speculate and discuss, man. And- because the question is, we know that we lost so much information in the burn burnings of the library uh, libraries at Alexandria. We know. Um, you know, that Gobekli Tepe is really unexplored. My question and the thing that really floats my boat is what knowledge is in these great, great uh, repositories? Because I Mm -hmm. think that's what, in my opinion, I think that's what they are. Like I said, if you wanted to, if you wanted to have something that would, that would survive cataclysm, that would be held as a body of culture um, and knowledge, you'd do it in stone. Um, I wonder, my brother, I wonder what's underneath the paws of the Sphinx, you know, and I wonder what happens with that information. I mean, like I said, these large, these large monolithic um, structures that are that are being discovered in, in, in Antarctica, gosh darn it, dude, I wonder what's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because, my Lord, we, we, so we in, a, in, a, in a society where we are just more often than not uh, being asked to define ourselves by what we produce or consume, my brother, I reckon there's some information in there, some skill sets, some ideas that we dearly need. Well, look, man, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, and look, the most powerful weapon on earth that I can perceive would in fact be that knowledge, man. It's the knowledge, whatever that might be. And <laughs> I think it's yeah. time, you know, yeah. it's, I think it's time that the human race uh, obtained that. But, you know, it will happen when you know, we're ready. And clearly, looking at the state of the world, we're not. There is far too much greed for an ultimate, you know, idea or ideology or power to be revealed right now. Man, no, that's like giving a a kid who's had too much red cordial a BB gun and a yard full of birds. That's just irresponsible, you know. So up until then, you know, we can sit we can speculate and hang out by the water cooler and, you know, satiate our needs for, I don't know, fascinating pseudoscience. What a great time I've had today. Thanks, man. I, I, um, I would invite all the listeners to, to stay, stay on this journey. It's, it's fun to pontificate bigger, bigger ideas and bigger things. But to turn this crazy bus back towards the shore, I'm curious, what would you – so coming back, there's a few parallels with the actual Stargate movie. And mm. I guess what was cool – on my most recent rewatch, was to look at James Spader, the frustrated archaeologist, who, by the way, we first meet him in a room giving a lecture to his peers, and they're 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 openly heckling him. They walk heckling. out, yeah, <laughs> yeah they're <laughs> yeah. walking, out. and uh, and so you know, I wonder about, about parallels to a to a 
you know, to a Graham Hancock, to to a John Anthony West, you know, like I wonder because, you know, Hancock first started writing, um, you know, a couple – releasing um, his ideas into the world a couple of years before the movie was released. So, um, you know, in looking at that, there's a couple of really interesting parallels, um, you know – but yeah, to sort of tie it all together, I guess what what would you score that movie? Like, I struggled to give that a score or a rating. Like, um, is it a good movie? Is it a is it an average movie with a fantastic premise? <laughs> what is it, my bro? Yeah, I, I get why you're finding that hard to um to rate there. Well, look, you've got a sort of um, it is an adventure, it is a fantasy, it is a science fiction. It's just wonderful matinee adventure fun. But yeah, it, there's some lumbering moments. But more to the point, like you know, some of the acting's not even that flash or the scripting really. But it is the concept that really you know sparks the imagination for me and lets it run wild. You know, just the illusion of the whole sky god premise and you know taking for granted granted um, what we thought we knew, basically. So on Kurt Russell alone, it's a 10, but so I've got to, <laughs> I've got to reduce it for a few other things. But look, I think, look, I've seen it a bunch of times. It's, yeah, I, I enjoy it. So we don't really rate much on this show, do we? But um, I think it's a watch. That's what I'm going to call it today, man. It's you a know? really, it's a really interesting one for me. I'm going to say it's a pretty bad film with a fantastic idea, fantastic stage direction, fantastic cast. Like, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's really Look, man, it's really the design on the Egyptian gods themselves is excellent. You know, Anubis, the terrifying mask that the dude wears is just phenomenal. And yeah. I kind of love that idea, though. That's what I liked was seeing inside Ra's inner sanctum. And whoever they cast as Ra, this sort of androgynous dude, wow, what a crazy. In his final oh. cinematic role. He, he um, yeah, he's what that cat from the crying game. Well, this is interesting. The the production was 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 it didn't exactly run smoothly. Spader didn't really want the want the role. Kurt Russell didn't really want the role. Um, and I am so sorry to that particular actor, young man who played Ra, most famous for his role in the Crying Game. But yeah, he was having this whole exis- existential. I don't want to really be an actor anymore. So huh. there's yeah, there's some moments all through the film where. You can almost you can almost see it. Um, Spader yeah, she was just to go home. Yeah. Spader was actually embarrassed to be to be doing a, a quote unquote sci fi type movie, even though for mine he absolutely tears up the role. I guess my point is it's probably not it's not your it's not in your top three Kurt Russell movies. No, no, it's not. Easily not is the point. I it's probably not a, even in a- my probably not even in my top five. But that yardstick's kind of unfair, man. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's measurable like that by how many Kurt Russells are in it. You know what I mean? I'll give it one Kurt Russell and half a spader, please. You know? <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it, it it is great fun. So get get around it and give it a give it a bloody watch, people. That's my recommendation. But um what it did do was inspire the series, and we're not going to talk too much about it, but because the universe is potentially that rich, well, they explored it and they did a stand-up job. It survived for 12 years on the television in various iterations. So clearly there was enough, you know, really interesting stuff to do with this IP. 
could be arguable to say that it's the series that that really asserted this this universe and this idea. And yeah, man, I went all through it as did you. Even when they progress into the ideas of Atlantis, they they get into the season seven or eight of SG one and start to talk about the the um, the the concept of Atlantis and the dwellings um, in Antarctica and all that sort of stuff. But mm. all this is for another day, my brother. I feel like I feel like I need to take my Marty Feldman eyes and go and put some uh, zucchini on them. Is that what you put on? I don't even know. <laughs> oh no, I just I take I just take them out now and wash them in warm water and put them back in. That's like that's my new trick. Very yeah. good. So it's actually Very really good. good for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just when they tangle, it gets a bit weird and you go a bit dizzy. But that's okay. Yeah, like that chick what in uh, the the chick in the dark crystal. Like oh, what's her name? Olga. Oh, Olga. Yeah, yeah. Takes her eye out, looks around corners, as if you don't want to do that. It'd be great. I know, I know. Yeah, Fantastic. look, it's been an absolute journey today. Thank you so much for uh, dissecting a little bit of um, Stargate, bit. more importantly, what Stargate inspired. So, yeah, it's been a hell of a journey. Thanks for coming on it, my brother. Yeah, man, that was wonderful. All right, people, uh, look, until we, until we next uh, in whatever portal you're receiving us from, look forward to, uh, you know, Speaking to the people who look up and go, fwoah. <laughs> That's right. I think we can all do with a good fwoah every now and then. So take it easy until next time. You know where to go for all the latest social media activities. Of course, hit us up on the Facey Bees and leave us a message of something that you might like to contribute to or even an inspiration for a potential future program. So hit us up on the FBs. That would be great. This is, of course, the man, Childian Candidate. Peace out. Toodles. Toodles.